Okay, so the story of Gidon is three chapters, six, seven, and eight in Shoftim, and we're up to chapter eight. And um, if you recall, we met Gidon as a young man who was uh, questioning, having difficulties. When the angel appears to him, he says to the, you know, the angel says, God be with you. And he says, where is God? And um, for his spirit of defense of the Jewish people, he is chosen to be the leader and to rid the Jewish people of the Midianite scourge. I'm going to uh, start the screen share. <clears throat> All right. Uh, watch that. Okay. So here, if you recall, we talked about the cycle of the Shoftim. And here we have a, a, the story of Gidon is almost the perfect cycle. And it's something to bear in mind that how, how the first judges go through the cycle. Once we finish with Gidon, that, that is after chapter eight, things start changing in Sefer Shoftim. But until now, we have this, this cycle that we've talked about, how the Bnei Israel sin, Hashem punishes them through their enemies. Bnei Israel cries to Hashem, Hashem sends a judge, a judge fights and saves them, and we have peace for 40 years. So, Gidon's story is pretty much the cycle. We've seen it with Uthiel. We saw it with Ehud. We saw it with Devorah. And now with Gidon. But there are some interesting changes to the pattern. And after this, it will be much harder to put the book into that pattern. It's not going to fit. Okay. So first of all, I always like to look at this text. If you'll notice, the, this text breaks up the, the parak into five sections. I actually think there are more sections than that. But the first section, if we want to follow there, the, the paragraphing here of the Tanakh, the first section is uh, the story of several challenges to uh, Gidon in his leadership. The second uh, paragraphing that they have here, this, the first one is from Pusik Aleph till Pusik Tet. And the second one is from Yudta to Hafalif. And that's kind of the development of the rest of the story of the fight against Midian. The, the sukkah they have from Chafbet to Chafchet, 22 to 28, is kind of the finale of Gidon's war and the aftermath and a very interesting things going on there. And then the last bits you have 29 to 20 to 32 is the death of Gidon and 33 or 35 is kind of the aftermath. What happens after Gidon dies? And it's all gonna um, be very interesting, shall we say? Okay, so what, what has just happened? What's just happened, if we go backwards to the end of Zion, they had this massively fascinating war where Gidon and his 300 men 
overcame the massive Midianite army by the surprise attack, you, the, the chauffeurs and the torches, which remind us of Matan Torah, the great, great Jewish victory. And then comes the chase. Now, I put in some more maps. Okay. Where are my maps? Everything is, has to be opened up again because of the, oh, it got cut off. Okay, because of the Hafsaka Hashmal. So let's go back here. So the, the battle takes place in the north here and the Midianites are all over. This is, this is kind of the, the desert after the Eastern part of the of the Jordan where we have today uh, the country of Jordan. Further east, we go into, I don't know, Saudi Arabia, whatever is out there. And the Midianites are from those desert areas. So when they're defeated by Gidon, they start running south and east. They're running away to get back to their land. And Gidon, at the end of chapter seven, right, he, makes a call up in verse 25, he calls up Ephraim and he says, you guys are on the spot. You guys can come and help out and you will hear, because he's coming down from Tavor, the, the Jezreel Valley, Ein Harod, and they're coming down this way. And Ephraim is uniquely situated to cut the Midianites off at the fords. So Ephraim, he sends messages to Ephraim to come and capture the fords and keep the Midianites from running away. He, he's very thorough, Gideon. You know, it's important to understand this. He does not want to do this war in a half-hearted half way. He wants to finish up with the Midianites. Now, I'll just remind you that the story of Devorah and Barak, Devorah and Barak are at the, the initial battle, but it is Yael who kills the king, uh, the, the actually the commander-in-chief, Sisra. And over there we mentioned that when you're fighting an enemy, there's two parts of the battle, because Devorah tells um, Barak, you're not going to have glory. The glory of the first battle will be on Devorah's name. And the glory of the second battle, which is killing the, the officer, is going to be in Ail's name. And based on that same principle, Gideon is not satisfied with the battle that happens right, at this point. He wants to finish off the leaders. There's always a fear that if you don't get to the leaders, they will regroup and come back. And he wants to avoid that scenario. So he tells Ephraim to keep people from running away. And as a result, Ephraim, Ephraim does what they're told. They come, they capture the two officers of Midian, O Ravenzev, and they cut their heads off and bring them to Gidon on the other side of Jordan. And that's where we open up Parachet with that background. Pasakala. The man of Ephraim, that is the, the, the group of Ephraim, they come to Gidon, right? Gidon has been chasing with his men down south. He comes down and he's 
crossing the Jordan. And these men of Ephraim have killed the kings over there, the officers, Oev and Zev. And they come to him with the heads of these leaders. And they say to him, What is this thing you have done to us? You didn't call us. You went to fight Midian. You didn't tell us. And they fought with him very vigorously. And here is one of those things that, uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's not something that women understand so well. It's a guy thing. It's a guy thing. You won the war. Thank you so much. You rid us of this terrible enemy that decimated our food supply. Thank you so much. That's amazing. And I'm very proud to do my little bit. No, no. Why didn't you call us? We wanted to be part of the battle. How could you do this to us to leave us out? Now, just to remind you, it's not that um, he, he doesn't call them. He calls them now. He calls them at the end of the battle. If you remember, the general call up that Gidon does is for Zavul and Asher Naftali back in chapter six. He calls up Menashe, which is his own tribe, but he doesn't call up Ephraim. And Ephraim are insulted and offended, and it's very hard to figure out what is their problem. So the first thing we have to consider is they actually, and this is Das Sofrim, this Das Sofrim is a very gentle soul. This Rabbi Rabinowitz, a, a contemporary, and he's like, no, they meant well, because Devorah says, why didn't you come to join the battle? She criticizes the tribes that don't come, and they don't want to be criticized. They say, you should have called us, we would have been there. But he's basically a lone voice. Most of the Farsham understand this as a petty kind of complaint, uh, an arrogance, like, how dare you? How dare you go out and win this battle? How dare you? be in charge of things. You're just Menashe. You're nobody. And it seems that we have to go back to the original story of Ephraim and Menashe. And it's kind of sad because if we look at this whole Sefer Bracious, we see that sibling rivalry is a major issue. And when we get to Ephraim and Menashe, it seems like we've come to a quiet place. And in fact, we give a bracha. Right? But when Yaakov blesses them, he switches his hands and he gives the greater right-handed blessing to Ephraim and not to Menashe, who's older. This is disturbing to Yosef. If you look at Parshas Vayechi and Yosef's like, what are you doing, dad? Menashe is older. And Yaakov says, I know, I know, but Ephraim will be greater. And it seems as if there is, because of this, some rivalry. He says Ephraim will be Meloha Goyim. And most of the Chazal understands to mean we're talking about Yeshua. Yeshua is the man who made the sun stand still. Cry out loud. What could be more Meloha Goyim? Everyone had to notice that event. But that was Yeshua. And now the leader is from Menashe. And it doesn't seem like the people of Ephraim can handle that. Now, to add to their uh, mistake here and their their um, 
problem. The war is not over. Gideon has not finished this battle. So why are you starting a, a, an argument and a whole pataram in the middle of the battle? What are you doing? Right? Leave Gideon to do his thing. You do what you're a part. And when everything is over, you can say, Gideon, well, why didn't you leave us out? But this, this is a, a very big problem. The Barbados says they want the honor for themselves. Now, the Riff discusses this thing. It's not like Gideon could say, well, you know, really God chose the people because there were only 300 men. And if you can imagine the honor that these 300 men got, but really Gideon did make a general call up, but he did not call Ephraim. So Ephraim is insulted, they're offended, and they are very angry. And it seems a sort of arrogant thing that they think they're the only ones who could be in charge and they don't like this one bit. Now, Gideon is facing a choice here. How do I deal with this situation? These people are, are making trouble. These people are, um, um, what's the word? They're, they're instigators. And he would be very well uh, understood if he said, you guys have a nerve. You have a nerve. You know what I've been through the last week? Do you know what I've been going through? Do you know what we did last night? You know what's going on here? Just say thank you, right? That's a completely outrageous thing to do. And he's totally within his rights to fight with them. So let's watch what Gino does. Pasik Ben. Pasik Betty says, what have I done like what you did? Aren't the gleanings of Ephraim greater than the vintage harvest of Abiezer? Pasik Gimel. God gave in your hands the offices of Midian, what could I have done like you did? Is actually tremendously astounding and unbelievable that Gidon backs off, answers gently, diplomatically, and kindly. He puts himself down in order to build them up and to keep the peace. It's extraordinary. It's an extraordinary thing to see a leader who has every right to say, Shut up, you creeps. What's your problem? How dare you? And stop complaining. Look what I did for you. He has every right. But he doesn't say that. He said, you guys are so amazing. I'm nothing compared to you. Look what you've done. Now, the, of course, you have to always remember that because it's an agricultural society, the expressions are agricultural. What are the gleanings of Ephraim and the Bitsir Abiezer? This is referring to the harvest of grapes. When you um, take the main harvest, okay, we're talking about in a vineyard, so that's called a batsir. You take all the grapes, the main grapes, and then you come back, because there's always grapes left on the vines, and that's called the gleanings. Generally speaking, the first, the general harvest is going to be the better, and the things that are left behind are not going to be the great grapes, so to speak. But he's saying the, the gleanings of Ephraim, which refers 
apparently to the capture of the two officers, your gleanings are greater than my harvest, because he's Abiezer. He's, that's one of the families of Menashe. You got the two officers, and I, I couldn't do anything like that, which harks back to the greatness that Yael displays. When you kill the leader, that is a tremendous uh, accomplishment, a tremendous victory. So he's playing on that. Look how he turns around the scenario and he says to them, you guys did the really important stuff. I'm, I'm like nobody. And the humility and the graciousness and a diplomacy here is unbelievable and totally admirable. And then in Pasuk Gimel, at the end, it says, And then their spirit calmed down. He said something that calmed them down. They felt better. And he didn't have to do that. Now, it's important to understand that the lesson that we get from here is a great one. It says in Mishlei, A gentle answer turns anger away. And it's a classic example of it. He says, you guys are amazing. I have such respect for you. You did something that, that like nobody could have done. And I, I'm just, you know, you're just the best. And they are calmed down. So that's a very great lesson for us. You could take a situation that's very, very explosive and you can defuse it by the right choice of words. And our words are so important. And the, the way we react to things is so important. We can easily pick a fight all the time, or we can answer gently or back off and avoid the fight. Now, it's instructive to compare this story to the story of Yiftah, which we'll get to in a few weeks, where Yiftah is faced with the same challenge. It's even more so because Yiftah is also Menashe. He's definitely not as great a personality as Gidon. And he doesn't, he's not able to come up with a gracious way to back out of it and ends up with a terrible result. But here, because you notice that the, the that Sofran points out here, then their spirit was appeased, but it wasn't entirely appeased because the rivalry between Ephraim and Menashe has not gone away. It's just been postponed. But we do see here a tremendous, tremendous quality of Giddos. And uh, let's go on. Um, there is actually one other explanation to this metaphor that the gleanings of Ephraim are greater than the, than the vintage harvest of Abiezer. It could also mean that the, the poorest among you Ephraim are greater than the strongest of us, Abiezer, Menashe, which is again, uh, a completely astounding and admirable humility. Something to really learn from. Let's go on. Pasuk Dalit. And Gidon is passing over the Jordan with his 300 men, his band of loyal soldiers, and they are tired and they are chasing. What are they chasing? So back into the map here, okay? This is where, if you look at map, I've numbered at number three, Gidon is going to follow the Midianites out here to Karkur which is deep in the desert. And he's got these 300 men crossing the Jordan and they're going on a long, according to the Dasmika, this is 
like 230 kilometers, which is, I don't know what it is in miles, but it's, it's far. It's far, like 170 miles, Mashu Kazan, just as, uh, off the cuff. And he gets to these two towns. Oh, wait, I have to show you it in the map. When he crosses over, you can see here, there's two Jewish towns on the other side of the border. One is called Sukkot and one is called Pinuel. And these two Jewish towns are right over the Jordan. And when he gets to them, we're told that his 300 men are tired and hungry, uh, tired of pursuing Pasakeva. And he said to the men of Sukkot, give please loaves of bread to the people that are at my feet following me because they are tired. Okay, so the Malman breaks up this Pusik and we have to watch the wording here. He tells the men of Sukkot, we have to be very exact here, the men of Sukkot, please give us bread for my people because they are tired. So the Malman breaks down his request to two parts. The first part here is give a little staka, give a little chesed. I have hungry people here. Then he says, I am pursuing after Zevach and Salmuna, the kings of Midian. We haven't heard about them before, but they are the two kings that Gidon wishes to defeat. And they are back in Karkor. It's not clear if they ever left Karkor or if they ran away from the battle. But these people are the ones Gidon wants to get. So the second half of Pasuke is saying, I am now serving you. I am in the army helping you out. And I need you to help me. Now, if we were to call that a modern name, we would call that an army tax. If you take a look at the Mishnah Torah here, the Rambam says, Lokeach um, Sadot, the king is entitled to take fields and vineyards and olives to his servants when they go to war and they spread out over these places if they have nothing to eat except from there. And he must pay for it. And this is all based on Shmuel Olive chapter eight, where we're told what a king is able to do, what a king has the right to do. And the, the Ramab says to you, this is, this is a legitimate request on two levels. On one level, Chesed, and on the other level, I'm, I'm running your army. You, you are obligated to help the army. This is the army effort. Now, the people don't answer. The officers come out and they say, Have you got the palm of Zebach and Salmuna in your hand now? That we should give your army bread? Now notice their focus is on the army. They're not talking about the chesed aspect. They're just, there's no response to that. They're saying, you didn't win the war yet. You don't have the kings yet. Why should we help you? Jump in the lake. Plus anxiety. Gidon is now, and this is not, you know, something that he can say, well, you guys are great. You know, so this is an, an astounding display of chutzpah on any level, because even if, 
the the um, <clears throat> the Dasofrim says that there they might refuse the request, but the way they say it, did you capture the kings yet? That we should help you? Why should we help you? The way they say it is completely out of line. It's totally not befitting the way you talk to someone who is out there trying to help you. Now, if you want to give a rationale, why do they refuse? It's, it's easy to understand if you look at the map, you say they are on the other side of the Jordan. They're where all the enemies are. If I am seen to help the rebel who's trying to, I don't know who Gidon is, who's Gidon? Gidon, he's, he's got this nebby little band of 300 people. How do I know he's gonna win this war? Why should I help him? So they're totally afraid of the enemy. So that's understandable. It's understandable to say we are afraid to help you. However, once again, I have to emphasize, what do we learn from here? The way you talk matters. They could say, you know, we're terrified to help you. We're in a very bad position here. We are sitting here, sitting ducks. And if you don't win, they'll kill us. Just say it, say it nicely. But they say, who are you anyway? You didn't win the war, so why should we help you? And Gidon gets mad. And here he puts his foot down, plus Gidon He doesn't say if. He says, when God gives them in my hand, he's certain that God is going to help him. I will thresh your flesh with thorns of the desert and thistles. I am going to whip you with briars. And here you have to think about what's going on with Gitto. Remember Gitto, Gitto the hesitant, Gitto the fearful, I need a sign, maybe can I have another sign, and then you can have another sign, and maybe a little dream here. Gitto is a transformed individual. He's gentle, but he can be gentle and diplomatic, and he's tough, and he's resolute, and he's sure of himself. This is the new Gitto. And then and he goes from, from there to another town, another Jewish town called Penuel. He tells them the same thing. I've got these hungry men. Can we please give them some bread? And I'm going out to fight against Midian for you. And the men of Penuel answered him just like the people of Sukkot answered. Now, First of all, pay attention here. In Pasuk Vav, it was Sarei Sukkot. It was the officers who refused him. We don't really know how the people felt in Sukkot. But in Pasuk Chet, we see the whole town is saying, <laughs> you know, you didn't win yet, so why should we help you? Now, the difference is in Pasuk Tet. Gidon answers them in Pasuk Tet, and he answers them also, when I come back in peace, and Gidon now is completely confident, when I come in back in peace, I will knock down your tower. So the Mepharshim now explain this. You see, Masuda says they had a tower. So what's the difference between the people of Sukkot, the people of Penuel, who's worse? The people of Sukkot don't have a tower. If they're attacked, they have no place to hide. But the people of Penuel already have a fortress. They have a tower. So they're refusing the help. 
they're refusing to join the war effort is much, much worse than the people of Sukkot. And in addition, if you're Medayik, if you look closely at the words, you see that it's the men of Penuel who are chutzpahdik to him. The officers might be forgiven, for they're like, they're in charge, they're fearful, but the people, you know, they, they tell Gidon, we're not helping you. You didn't do anything yet. And Gidon says, I'm going to come back and I'm going to knock your tower down. See how you like that. Gidon is very angry. And it's impressive to see, and this is one of our lessons we take from here. We learned that Manerach Shivchema, right? Manerach Shivchema, a soft answer will stop anger. We also learned that the proper time, the proper reaction to someone who's doing something for you is gratitude, right? What is this, what is this kind of business? Like he's, he's risking his life. Who is he doing for? The people of Ephraim have no gratitude. The people of Sukkot and Penuel have no gratitude. And whereas he can find a way to mollify the people of Ephraim, the people of Sukkot and Penuel are way out of line. So we're going to go back to the Rambam for a minute. Okay, the Rambam in the Laws of Kings, there's another one. And in chapter three, right? Okay, Halacha eight, the Rambam says, a person who rebels against the king of Israel, the king has permission to kill him. Even if he uh, uh, decreed that a person, right, go, should go from one place to another place, he didn't go, right, or he didn't leave his house and he left, he is liable to the death penalty. And if he wants to kill him, he can kill him. He doesn't have to kill him. He's able to kill him. And we see it in Yoshua chapter one, when the people tell Yoshua, anyone who goes against you, we will kill them. Right, and anyone who despises the king or insults him, the king can kill him, like Shimi ben Gera. And the king cannot uh, kill except with a sword, but he can also imprison and thrash for his honor. Okay, so this is getting back to the text. Why am I talking about laws of the king? Gidon, like the other Shoftim, has halachic status of a king. In other words, the people of Sukkot and Penuel are actually rebels. Now, they may say, but you don't have the status of a king. We didn't make you king. You didn't win the war yet. But effectively, Gidon does have the authority and the right to quell the rebellion. Because if you don't, then everyone will rebel. There will be no, there will be no uh, authority. OK, then we go on to the next section. Zevach and Samun have gone back to Karkor all the way in the east, due east of the Dead Sea, 230 kilometers out, according to the Das Mikra, and there are only 15,000 soldiers left. All the ones that are left from the main uh, army. The Hanoflim, the people that were killed back in Israel, may have Esrim Elf, 120,000 people, Ish Sholeif Kharev, soldiers. 
So the, the first to point out that there were other people with their camp and all their camels and their wives and their sisters and their cousins and their aunts. We have an immense victory that Gideon has already achieved. And he, people know about this, his name is known, which does add to our understanding that the people of Sukkot have no right to go against him because he has certainly at this point proven himself. And if you add the numbers here, you'll find that the numbers of the, the Midianite army were 135,000 to begin with. And he's knocked off the vast majority of them. Now, if you go back to that map, I have that map. Okay, the this winding path was called the path of the tent dwellers. And he goes east of Yogba. I don't know where um, uh, Nobach is on this map. It's not, this is not like a map, we don't have it there. But what seems to be happening is that he is avoiding uh, detection. He's going in a roundabout way because don't forget 300 men is a sort of skimpy fighting force. And he wants to pull another surprise attack. The Machane was better, they were secure. They never thought in a million years this lunatic is going to come out to get us. That wasn't part of their plan. So they're cool. They think everything's good. And he strikes them because they were secure. And they run away, Howard's, and Gideon chases them. And he captures the two kings of Midian, Zebach and Samuna, and he terrifies the whole camp. They are not able to react. They're not able to save their kings. They are Now notice the title, Ginom ben Yoash. This is a title of honor, which means that our understanding of who Yoash are Yoash was has to adjust a little bit and change a little bit because Yoash was this, you know, uh, head of the idol worship, and now he's being honored by being, you know, Gideon, the son of Yoash. So Yoash is a, is a personality, and he has uh, he has left the idol worship. Perhaps he never believed in it in any way. And Gideon, his son, returns from the war. Melmalecheres. This is usually understood as dawn. Although the different um, explanations, Cheres is uh, pottery, and Rabbi Yaakov has a very Rabbi Yaakov Kavanetsky has an interesting explanation. Cheres is a word for sun, and Rabbi Yaakov says that the colors of pottery are like the colors of sunset, and that's why it's a word for sun. He's coming back, and the Barbanel says because you can't fight these surprise battles and jump on these people in the daytime with three hundred men. So once the once the dawn breaks, it's time to leave. But now he has to come back and deal with Sukkot and Penuel. And he captures a boy from the people of Sukkot and he asks him a question. And the question is clearly the second half of the Pasuk. The question is please write for me the names of the officers of Sukkot and the elders. And there were 77 of them. This is actually a fascinating puzzle on many, many levels because we are now being shown 
the 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 literacy of Jews. Like if you if you could you know look in Europe, even in the in the 1700s and 1800s were many, many illiterates. You take a random kid from Sukkot and he's going to write down names for you, which is actually very interesting. Now, what does he do with that information? And he shows them the captured kings. He says, here they are. These are the kings that you said. Did you capture the kings that that we should give your tired people bread? And you notice Gino's emphasis in his declaration is on the chesed aspect of it. He doesn't talk about the army and the tax. He says, I had tired men. You didn't want to give my tired men bread because you said, where's Zebuchadnezzar? Here's Zebuchadnezzar. Can you imagine? They must have been very nervous at this point. What's he going to do to them? And Pasek Tetzayin, one of the very, very uh, unclear psukim in the Tanakh, Tetzayin, he takes the elders of the city, and all those thistles and briars he mentioned, and he let the people of Sukkot know about it. And this is very, very hard to understand. And um, how do we deal with this? So the question is, if he, we could go through a lot of different explanations here. We don't have a lot of time, but you have to understand that if the people, right, there's another number of ways of understanding it, that, the, that the, he took the elders and the elders took the thistles and he made the elders beat the people. And he let the people know by having the elders beat them. This is one thought. It's, it, it's the, the real question is why do you need the names of the elders and the, and the officers if you're going to beat the people? So it seems to me, and inside my humble opinion, that he's actually punishing the officers and those are the ones who are guilty. But by punishing the officers and thrashing them, he is letting the people of Sukkot know that this was unacceptable and the chesed should have been done there. It's not, it's a very unclear and difficult uh, section. Okay, Pasuk Yudzayin, that Migdal Penuel Natatz, now we have an escalation. He comes to Penuel as promised, the same thing, but, and he destroys their tower, and here he kills people. So the question is, why? Why does he kill people in Penuel? In Sukkot, it was enough to beat them up, embarrass them, punish them, show them who's boss. In Penuel, the most of the Mepharshim say that he met with resistance, they fought him, and so he killed them. The Ralbag actually says, The Ralbag actually earlier has said this. Uh, he says, He didn't actually mention to them that he plans to kill them, but he plans to kill them from the beginning. That's what the Ralbag thinks. But in any event, what you have here is an example of how Gidon's leadership has changed and developed. 
So from the hesitant guy that we first met, you have someone who he knows how to pick his battles. I'll make peace when I have to make peace and I'll be tough when I have to make to be tough. And you can't get away with that. Now we get to the kings. Now there seems to be something that, um, again, that let's just take that as a, as a lesson. Pick your battles. He picks his battles and he knows where to be tough and where to be gentle. But now he's got these two kings and they're alive. And there seems to be a very weird thing in the Tanakh about captured kings. So if you notice that when Yeshua captures kings, there's a whole ceremony where he says, you know, you guys are now subservient. When Shmuel has the captured Agag, he makes a whole speech about what Agag has done before he kills Agag. There seems to have been in the ancient world some sort of problem with killing a captured king not in the middle of battle. You know, you had to come up with a, a pretext or a, uh, a crime to lay at their feet and then you can execute them. There just seems to be something about the captured kings. And if you look through the Tanakh, you'll see that it's a weird, it's a weird thing. You got the Zebachat and they're alive. And now he comes to them and he says, Where are the minutes you killed on hard tabor? Like you, like them, one uh, look, the sons of the king. So here you have a situation that we don't see in the text. When did this happen on Tavor? The, the text doesn't tell us, but clearly from this statement, there was a battle with Zebach and Tzamuna. It sounds like they, this is either before this battle, right? Or by proxy, but they killed people in her Tavor. And he says, where are they? Which is strange, but it, the where is kind of, who were they? And they say, they actually look just like you. They will also look like sons of a king. You all have a princely bearing. And Gidon answers, Pastor by Yomer, Achai, B'nei Mihem, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother, full brothers. Chai Hashem, by the life of God, I wouldn't be killing you if you hadn't killed them. In other words, I am now the redeemer of the blood and I have to do this to kill, to kill you because you killed them. This is a very strange story. Now, the Das Mikra has a very interesting explanation here. And I think I mentioned it back in chapter six. In chapter six, after the incident of uh, destroying the Baal and Gidon wears the spirit of God and he calls up the troops and is all ready for a battle. And then all of a sudden, I need a sign. I'm going to put out the fleece and tell me if the fleece will be whatever with the fleece. What happened there? The Das Mikra has a very interesting theory, which makes a lot of sense. And that is the original battle, which took place up north here. Gideon was coming from here. He's coming from Ofra, from the Shomron. He's coming up with Menashe. And he asked Naftali Asher Zavulin to come down to meet him. 
So perhaps his original strategy was to get the Midianites in between the two Israeli armies and attack on both sides. But something went wrong. And his brothers who were leading the northern charge were killed in Hartabar. So he makes the statement to Zebach and Samuna, you killed them and now I will have to kill you. And it's not clear when they say, Kamocha, Kamohem, you all, the Torah, Pneamel, you all look like kings. And he said, they were my brothers, you killed my brothers. And he says to his oldest son, Yeter, who's with him now, get up and kill them. This is sort of a uh, rite of passage, perhaps, and an attempt to have his son, you know, join in his bravery and be, be a great hero. Kill the kings of Midian. But the kid, the youth, will not unsheath his sword. He's, he's too fearful. He is too young. He was afraid of them. Don't forget, these were the, the great kings who have uh, terrorized the Jewish people for seven years. He couldn't bring himself to do it. It also tells you something about Yetzer, this boy, who seems to be a little more gentle. And Zebach and Samun are not having any of it. You get up and kill us. Like the man is his strength. This is a strange phrase, and it seems to mean one of two things. Either you are a greater man, you are older and more powerful, and uh, we would much rather be killed by a strong, powerful man than by a fearful youth who may need to like hit us a few times to get it right. So you do it. That's one explanation. The other is, and this seems to me to be a very likely one, is that um, it, we are kings. We want to be killed by another king and not by a youth. And it's interesting that we see this in other places in the Tanakh, where a person about to die is still concerned about their honor. You'll bear this in mind in chapter 9. Okay, so Bayakam Gidon, Pasikhafala, Bayarogit Zebachat Samur, and Gidon obliges, he gets up and he kills them. Bayakachet Asaharonim, Asherbit Sareg Malehem. And he takes the crescent jewels that are on the necks of their camels. Now, it's, there's a, a thing that's going on here um, that's extremely pivotal, Pasikhafet. So first of all, we saw a lot about the, the leadership of Gidon, how he knows when to be gentle and he knows when to be strong and how he punishes the evildoers, the people don't do chesed, how he captures the king and wins the battle. And after this, the people come to him. We want you to be our king. Rule us, you, your son, your grandson, because you saved us from Midian. The people of Israel are not ungrateful. The people of Israel are admiring and um, anxious to go the next step and make give him not just temporary leadership, which was the fate of the judges, 
right? This is how they operated. They finished the battle, they went home, 40 years of peace. They say, no, no, you know what? We are tired of this. You be our king. And we're offering you dynasty. Not just you, but your children and your grandchildren. And this is a tremendous turning point in Jewish history because the Jews are saying, this system is not working. It just doesn't work for us. And you, Gido, you're a great leader. We see in you potential to be our king. And Gido's response, Chaf Gido, Vayomer Gido, Vayomer Leim Gido, Lo em shol ani bachem, velo yim shol b'ni bachem, Hashem yim shol bachem. I will not rule you, my son will not rule you, Hashem will rule you. And this is beautiful. I mean, it's just gorgeous. Like Gido is giving such a good Jewish religious answer. It's how, what are you supposed to say to that? That's the correct answer. It's the correct answer. God is your king, but it's not so simple. It's not so simple because even though God is our king, we still need an earthly leader and you are the right man for the job. And when the right man for the job doesn't step up, who's going to walk into that vacuum? The wrong man for the job. So there's so many aspects to this answer. It's hard to argue with the, the greatness, the humility, the, the spirituality. God is your king. I'm not going to be your king. On the other hand, People do need a leader, and you're really good at it. So it's uh, it's a very big turning point. Then Gidon says, you know what? Since you like me so much, I'm going to ask a favor. Each one of you could give me just one nose ring from your plunder, because these guys are Ishmaelites. They're like... Well, Midian and Yishmael were brothers. If we understand that Keturah, the mother of Midian, is, is also Hagar, so then they're actually full brothers. They're the same type. See, just give me one nose ring. And I'm sure. It's such a small request. Think, think in Jewish history. When did people give up their gold willingly? This is all of every time you learn Tanakh, you should be thinking, where, where is there a similar story? And did that similar story end well? And the weight of those nose rings that his people gave him, everyone in a nose ring, was 1,700 um, of gold, which you have to understand that's a lot of gold. Just one second. 21 kilos. I have to figure that out. 21 kilos of gold. It's got all this gold, and it was a humble and small request. That's besides the plunder that he himself took. Saharon is in a, a crescent shape, and Natif is like a teardrop and the purple robes of the royal robes of the king, and all the anakotl, the different beads and chains on the camels. The camels were also dressed up. 
tons of stuff, tons and tons of stuff. And he takes all this gold, and what does he do with it? Now an ephod was a dress, uh, a, an apron kind of thing that the Kohanim wore in the Beis Hamikdash. This is a, an attempt at Kedusha. And he presented it, he set it up in his town of Afra. And the children of Israel went astray after it there. It became an obstacle for Gidon and for his household. It was not a good thing. So if you're trying to think of what was this reminding you of, it should remind you of the golden calf where everyone gives their gold and it comes out an idol. Now, what does Gidon intend here with the with this, you know, golden aphod? It's clear that Gidon is a good guy. He's destroyed the Avodazara. He's gotten rid of it. What does he want to do here? He wants to pull, uh, he wants to set up a monument to this great victory. His intentions might have been good, but A, it's gold. B, it's in Ofra. It's not in Shiloh. It's not where you make holy garments. It's not, you're not a Kohen. You shouldn't be having an aphode. And you know that the Jewish people have a tendency to idolatry. So it was a very, very big error on the part of Gido. And he makes another error, which is also very, very fateful. That's a Kofchet. Kofchet summarizes his career. Oh, we have our end of our cycle. Midyon submitted before the children of Israel. They never raised their head again. You never hear about them making problems again. And the land was quiet for 40 years in the days of Gidon. But we're not finished yet. Yerubal. Now we call him Yerubal. Remember? Yerubal, the guy who fought the ball, where are you? He goes home. He goes to his home. He goes to Ofra. He doesn't lead the people anymore. He says, I did my bit, and now I'm going home. What does he do at home? Pasuk Laman, Ulegidon, are you shivin banim? Seventy sons, and you thought you had a big family. <laughs> it's clear it's not one wife, so there's a lot of women in this story. And they're all his children, those who come out from his thigh, so to speak, a little euphemism. He had a lot of wives. And he had a concubine in Shechem, and she also had a son. And he put his name Abimelech. What does Abimelech mean? My father is the king. Now, the, notice that it says, Vayasem et Shmo, he put his name Abimel. We have not heard the end of this character. But you have to ask yourself, what does Gidon do after this glorious career and this beautiful leadership that we've seen him transform to this unbelievably charismatic, confident, you know, up to anything leader? And then he says he retires. He makes himself this little, you know, golden aphod, which is going to be a, a very, very big uh, object of idolatry, right? And, and then he, he spends a lot of time having kids, hanging out with his wives. 
So these are two strikes against Gidon. And if you have so many wives, why do you need a concubine, please? The thing with the concubine is the concubine doesn't have Ketuba, she doesn't have Kedusha, and she lives in Shechem. And if you recall the history of Shechem and the Jewish people, till today we don't like Shechem, right? That's where Dina is raped. That's where Yosef is kidnapped and, so, and sold. Not a good place, but he takes a concubine there and she stays there. Remember, this is not a good thing. And he says, my dad is the king. He thinks he's a big shot. Back to Gideon. Pasuk Lamed Bet. He dies in a good old age. As you know, uh, the king said in France, everything is good until he dies. He dies at a happy old age. He's buried in the tomb of Yoash Aviv, as Yoash has been um, repatriated. He's already uh, a hero and being buried in his kever of Ofra, Avia Ezri, in Ofra, Avi Ezer. And here is where things go wrong. After Gidon dies, the children of Israel return. They go astray after all those Baal, those little idol worship, different types of Baals. And they made Baal Brit their God. This is one of the Baals, Pasuk Lamedalad. The Lo Zachru B'nei Israel Tashem Elokehem. The children of Israel did not remember God who saved them from all their enemies around. And they don't do chesed at the house of Yerubal, Gidon. Right? All, like all the good that he did for Israel. So here we're going back to that very problematic mita of ingratitude which we talked about right at the beginning of the parak with the B'nai Ephraim, like, Gidon, what have you done for us? You know, I'm sorry, the B'nai Ephraim, they're ungrateful that he's fought this battle and they want to be part of it. And Sukkot and Penuel say, well, what have you done for us lately? So ingratitude is a source of much conflict and much problem. And we see here that uh, when it says, they don't do chesed with Beit Yerubal, brings us back full circle. God did so much good for the Jewish people and they don't remember God. Gidon helped them so much and they don't remember Gidon. And these two things that Gidon slips up with at the end of his life are going to have terrible consequences in chapter nine. And so the fact that Gidon doesn't become king and he says, God will be your king, it's not so simple that that was the correct answer. It could be that the time was ripe for a king. And after this, things are going to be very problematic. Okay, I'm going to stop the screen share. All righty. And um, we will uh, finish up here. Any questions? Any thoughts? I really like Gidon, but that's always sad, the end of chapter eight when things kind of fall apart there. Yeah. Hi, Ellie.
Hi, Debbie. How are you being? Hi, Mommy. Great to hear. Thank you very much. What's going on, guys? You still so, like Gidon? I still like Gidon. I think Gidon is great. I, I think Gidon is great because I think he's a sort of um, everyman. Like, there's something about Gidon that you can really relate to. Like, he's so straight up he says what he thinks and you know you know where is god already i i love the fact that he he's troubled with it and he's looking for god and and that you know and god is very very tolerant and very very nice to him and you know helps him out and holds his hand and you see that he develops into which a, a major force a major leader you know it's it's a shame that like he messes up but you see that he has no intention of doing anything wrong and that his his heart is really in the right place you know i'm not going to rule you hashem will rule you so yeah i like it <laughs> i wanted to say that the line but we read it like that and we think like oh it was quite for 40 years but 40 years is like a, a nice chunk of someone's life. And that's a line that went into a lot of the Israeli dances. A lot of Israeli songs have this line, but Tishkot Armaim Shana, or Nishkot Armaim Shana. I noticed it in the songs that it's sort of a, um, it's sort of like, that's that's like what we're waiting for. We're, we're so beaten down. Jews are so beaten down. That, oh, 40 years of quiet. We would just love that. Right. Wouldn't that be amazing? I would say, let's ask for 100 years of quiet. Why stop at 40? But that's it. Like, you know, 40 years, we could, we could use a little quiet. Today is another. I noticed it in a number of songs. It's the 40 year theme. And there's always this slide back, you know, not, it doesn't last. It just never lasts. It's just, you know, they just go back to their cell phones and their whatever bad habits they knew, it, they can't break it. It's, it sort of seems like the cycle of Shoftim is kind of the cycle of Jewish history. It doesn't, you know. But I think I think we, we could do better. We're gonna do better. We're working at it. I kind of feel like this this last election was a resounding vote for in Israel anyway, in America they Balagan over there. But here it was a resounding vote for like we don't want your junk. We don't want the Arabs in the government. You know, we want the you know the the, the conservative, the right wing, and the religious. And we don't want to vote again in a short while. We want Sheket for 40 months. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, we'll we be, say we'll to people, that. maybe you rule us. You're the best we could do right now. You're not anywhere near what we need, but you're definitely better than Lapid, Gans, and the Gans belt. <laughs> as long as he doesn't make himself any food. Yeah. <laughs> What's the symbolism of that eight fold? You know, is he I, like a Kohen? It seems but, like that 
Well, number the first said that he wanted to take that, you know, one, one of the problems that he is that when, you know, the Ramban talks about it, that the, every shevet has their role. And the Chashmonaim, the Chashmonaim were Kohenim. So they should not have become king. And that's why there was such trouble for the Chashmonaim were coming up on Hanukkah. But here you see someone who is king, right? He is leadership material and he's trying to get a hold of something that's in Kedusha. I think it's the Ral Bag who says that. It's, it's not so clear to me. I think he just wants to make a monument. Like this is a tremendous victory. And everyone who sees it say, look at all that gold. The army that produced that much gold was a fantastic army and look how we conquered them. But the thought is, if you want to make a monument, why an Ofra? Because then you're, you're memorializing yourself. Why not in Shiloh? Why not in some place that's more general? I don't know, but I suspect that the whole story of, in, in the mythology of Jason and the Golden Fleece, definitely it's from Gino. I always find the sources for these things in the Tanakh. All of them, no? <laughs> oh, you see that. Where did it come from? The Golden Fleece. From Gino. Take together his fleece and his A-phone and the gold and change his name a little bit. And then you have the Greek mythology. I don't know. I don't know. But you, one thing you do see when Abimelech comes on the scene is how not the ship he is, how totally off he is, how he takes power is off, you know. So I always wonder what would have happened if Gideon would have said, okay, I'll be the king. What would have happened? But he, he was he was a tzaddik, so he knew it wasn't the time, right? Did he? Look what happens when the people ask Shmuel for a king, and Shmuel Aleph, they say, we want a king. And Shmuel has the same reaction. You don't need a king. God is your king. And Hashem says, no, give him a king. Give him a king. But you have to have a king with a Navi. You have to have a king with a spiritual figure to work together with the king. And that's God's system of checks and balances, what the Americans call it. In other words, the Navi is the one who's supposed to come to the king and say, this is not the same, huh? And it doesn't really work with Shaul, but it works with David. Because when the Navi comes to David and says, David, Natana Navi. David is like, oh, yeah. that's the, the king that works together with the Navi, and that's when it actually works. But Hashem says, you know what? If they want a king, give them a king. You just have to have a Navi together with the king. You'll be the Navi. So it's it's the king can't be everything. That's the problem. But the shofet is on a higher level than just any person. He wasn't anything. So he was not but the shofet seems to have the same halachic status as a king. So that's why Gideon is able to kill people, right? He shouldn't be able to kill people. How could he go around killing Jews? He kills the people pretty well, right? right? Where does he get the right? So the Rambam says he has the right. They're rebels, and he's he's like a king. Like Yoshua, all the judges were like kings. They weren't kings, but they were like kings. They had that the ability to do these things. 
And where was the Navi now? Not mentioned. You said Shoftim happened over the period of 400 years, right? So there are some weird, like, so there are other things that happen at the same time of Shoftim. We learned that Ruth happened the same time of Shoftim, and there might have been other people that were Nevi'im, but we just don't put, the, put it together. Am I crazy here? Well, one, one, of the, one of the things that characterizes the time of Shoftim is a lack of prophecy. At the beginning of Shmuel Aleph, it says, um, The word of God was rare in that time, and there was no prophecy. So the Jewish people, and it's interesting because to me, it looks like Sefer Shoftim goes up in a certain arc. And then when it gets to Gidon, after that, it's like down all the way. And by the time we get into the beginning of the time of Shmuel, there is such a low point, you know, like Yiftach is like, he's like the example of a lousy leader. Shmuel Bedorok, Yiftach Bedorok, Shmuel Bedorok. He's the one that we choose. To, and then Shimshon, like, I don't know, Shimshon's an interesting character, but like, you're a good Jewish leader, it's hard to say. So they're like the back, you know, and then this is the small time Shoftim. So at the, the end of Sefer Shoftim is kind of a downward spiral. It's not a good thing. And that's when you hit rock bottom, that's when Shmuel comes along and, you know, and pulls everybody back up. He's the first Chabad rabbi. There's Kilov everywhere. <laughs> that's, it's interesting because the Medrash at the beginning of Shoftim says that they weren't doing enough Kirov. They were not they, going out there and teaching people. And you have to go out and teach people. And but so, they also had the Kohanim. He throws his circuit. The Kohanim and the Levim were supposed to be teachers. But if you look at the last five chapters of Shoktiv, which are the stories of Pesach, and Pelegish, Begeva, and each one has a lady in there. And the lady is not a good character. The lady is trouble. So the Levium are not, you know, I don't, the Kohen are also problematic, but the Levium especially are not doing what they're supposed to be doing. The whole Tkufa Sashoftim is a failed Kufa. It's a really problematic failed Kufa. Even though you have these stars in the middle, you have like Devorah and you have Gidon, but the, the general trend is down. But also, like, weren't they able to ask um, Shilas? Um, to go to the base of Megdash, wasn't there a way for the Kohen to ask Hashem? Like, didn't they use the, yes. the Hoshein to ask questions? So there you have, you have the example of Eli, right? So Eli's the Kohen, God's all, and he's the Shofri, and he's the one who should be leading, but he's sort of pictured as just sitting there. You know, when you first meeting, he's sitting there. When, you, when he dies, he's sitting. With his sons, he's passive. So he's supposed to be leading and he's he's just not he's just he tries i mean when he sees but he gets it wrong and he starts yelling at hana what are you yelling at hana for because he's like he's misplacing his authority right. you know where he should yeah. be yelling at his sons not at hana so he is the Cohen god he does have a hotline he does have navua 
And it says in Parakimel, it says, um, it says, right, Hashem the light of God is not out yet. And the Medra says that's a reference to Ailey. See, he was the candle of God. He was not out yet, but he was on his way down. And Shmuel is coming in to take his place. Shmuel is going to get the prophecy that Ailey loses, and Shmuel is going to be the leader that Ailey wasn't able to be. And that's what, you know, and Shmuel is able to bring up the whole generation with him. That was the Koach of Shmuel. So. Right. That's where he gets his own safer. <laughs>